From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. At age 14, she was the youngest of the Little Rock Nine, a group of Black students who integrated Little Rock Central High School in 1957. She's now 80 and calls Colorado home. There's a need for African-American studies as a part of the curriculum in all schools where all kids have the opportunity to learn about other groups of people. Carlotta Walls-Lanier reflects on civil rights today as teaching Black history in schools comes under attack in Arkansas and other states. Once you know your history, know who you are, you show your value, you want to talk about with others to have them to understand and learn about your background. And that helps to make what this is called the United States of America. While journalism is retreating in many places across the country, CPR is putting more resources to work for you. Communities all over Colorado are in need of critical information, and your support ensures that trustworthy news remains freely available to Coloradans everywhere. As demand grows for CPR services, so does the need for additional resources. Your membership helps fund the important work ahead. A reliable way to give is monthly as an Evergreen member. Get started at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. There's pushback in Arkansas against a new law that takes away course credit for students in advanced placement African-American studies classes. The law, signed by Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders, bans, quote, teaching that would indoctrinate students with ideologies like critical race theory. The Little Rock School District says it plans to keep offering the AP classes, at least for now. That same district, of course, got national attention in 1957 when a group of nine black teenagers integrated Little Rock Central High School. Carlotta Walls-Lanier is one of them. She's now 80 and lives here in Colorado. She spoke with CPR's race, diversity, and equity reporter, Elaine Tassie. Thank you so much for sitting down with me today. One of the things I was hoping that we could speak about today was your thoughts and feelings about what's happening in Arkansas right now. I just thought it was ridiculous. Um, I got a phone call regarding that. My cousin really teaches the AP course there at Little Rock Central High School and very well certified to teach it. And she explained to me the things that were happening there. It's unfortunate that we are now going back 60 some odd years and repeating history again. Um, is it is mind blowing to me that the governor would make this statement when she took <laughs> the Little Rock Nine One Hundred One course at Little Rock Central High School herself. So I, I don't know what is all behind all of that. I live here in Colorado, but the course will be taught, and they have been guaranteed uh, as far as the universities in Arkansas that are state supported that they will accept the credit for the AP uh, African American Studies course. So to me, that's kind of interesting that the state-supported schools will accept the credit, which is being funded by the state. So, I, you know, it is mind-blowing. So what you're saying is that even if a student graduates from high school and can't 
receive credit towards their high school graduation for taking AP African American Studies in high school, the college will the college will accept it, and the college board across the country they're accepting it. So, you know, none of this makes sense uh, as I see it. And then, then there's the other piece that we we have to talk about that there's a need for African American studies as a part of the curriculum in all schools where all kids have the opportunity to learn about other groups of people. Uh, I ask the instructor, what is the makeup of your 150 students that you are teaching this AP course? And it is a mixed group of people. They are white, brown, black kids wanting to learn that piece of history of a part of American history. You shouldn't take those sort of things away. Unfortunately, our school systems are taking away things that help to make you a better person. I think that civics and history needs to be uh, required for any kid to graduate from high school. Humanities need to be in a part of your curriculum. And I'm finding that all a number of states, especially southern states, are are passing bills to 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 stop books being read. There's banning on books. Uh, everybody needs to know which books are being banned and go out and read them. Is the way I see it. So, what do you think about the argument that it causes people to? hate each other and themselves. They don't know about themselves, evidently. Um, They shouldn't hate themselves. Once they get to understand their worth and their value and what their forefathers have done here in this country, they will have that worth and understanding. And that also goes for white and yellow and reds and whatever here in this country, once you know your history, know who you are and whose you are, you have value, you show your value, you want to talk about uh, with others to have them to understand and learn about your background, your family background, and that helps to make what this is called the United States of America. Mm -hmm. So that is how I see that. I. My, my, how I'm seeing this whole thing right now is that I feel sorry for those white kids when I was going through what I was going through at, at Little Rock Central High School. I considered them ignorant. So you felt sorry for them because they were being vicious towards you? I, vicious and not understanding that I was their equal. They did not accept me as their equal, but I knew I was their equal. So yes, that's ignorance the way I see it. And I see it that way today. This is just plain ignorance. And if they want to continue to go down that path, that is, that's the road they're taking right now. They are not learning. And every child should have the opportunity to learn. I I don't care who you are. Everyone should have that opportunity. 
So, no, I didn't hate them. Um, I was even not, though you could feel that they hated you. Even though I knew they hated me. I was not taught to hate. Okay, so that, and, and I hope that I have been successful with that with my children, not to, to hate people. Well, speaking of your own children, will you tell me a little bit about what your life became after your experience in Little Rock? What my life became, well, for 30 years I didn't talk about that, uh, about that experience. Um, uh, it was too painful to reiterate, and I really didn't want to be, uh, I, I, I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want to relive it. So for, it, it was not until the, uh, the 30th anniversary that we all gathered for the first time in 30 years that we saw each other, and it was pretty much after that. The NAAC, the National Association of uh, Colored People had their board of directors meeting in Little Rock, their annual meeting. And so with that, they invited us there and we all came and it was quite a moving event for us. And so what was the date of that event? That was 1987. And so since 1987, you've been speaking about it more publicly? Yes. It took me probably a good 10 years to be able to, or more. To be honest with you, once I wrote my book, that was the most cathartic part for me. And I was able to get it down. And since then, you know, I can talk about it much better than I could before. What were some of the parts of it that you found to be really difficult and painful to discuss? Well, all of the, well, all of the the hate and so forth that took place, the deaths that took place, uh, the uh, I didn't realize I had flashbacks when I was talking to to the youth about this time in the various history classes that I was asked to come and speak to. And um, all of a sudden, some of that that I had pushed to the back of my mind was coming forward. One in particular was when the chief of police, I was telling them about him being killed and his wife. And they say he killed his wife and then killed himself. I never believed that. I just know that they were murdered because he was one that was trying to be uh, an assistance to us um, would give us information about not being in a certain part of the school at a certain time because they had infiltrators there. So he was helping. Um, he was being a law officer as they should be. And uh, as I was telling that, I all of a sudden broke down and I had to leave the room. So those are the sort of things when you have these flashbacks, sometimes you can deal with them and sometimes you can't. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't that day. How did you end up living in Denver? <laughs> I went to Michigan State University when I finished high school. And uh, I, was, I had an uncle here who would write, you know, he and his 
Vermont would write to me, and they were telling me how great it was here in Denver. So I came to visit, and then I went between my freshman and sophomore year, and then I went back to Michigan State, and I could not get this place out of my mind. What about this place could you not get out of your mind? It was clean, the mountains, the, the blue sky. Uh, when I, I arrived, um, it, it, was, it, it just felt right. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget, I was walking down 17th Street, and you know how it is downtown, it's not, it, and this was all new to me. And I asked for directions, I saw a policeman at the corner and I went up and asked how to get to where I was going. And he gave it to me and I crossed the street and it hit me that I never would have done that in Little Rock, Arkansas. I'm assuming it was a white police officer? Right. And if you had done that in Arkansas, what do you imagine I, the outcome would have been? I never would have asked. That, I, you know, we had black policemen but they were in a black on the black street like what we call Five Points today. Okay, at that, when I came here, uh, Five Points was predominantly, or well, 90% African American, okay? It, it you know, uh, things have changed since, but that's what it was when I came here in 1962. So I've been here a long time. And so what have you done since 1962 here in Denver? I have uh, finished college. At, at, uh, it is now University of Northern Colorado. I then worked uh, for four and a half years for uh, the YWCA as uh, Metropolitan Denver Teenage Director. I, um, one of the jobs I had was to uh, renovate a home that had been given to the Y. And as I did that with volunteer work, I recognized that I grew up in that business. My great-grandfather was the first black contract in the state of, of Arkansas. And my father was a brick mason, and I was around construction all the time. And um, I decided to get my broker's license. I did that, and I've been in real estate ever since. Uh, I used to be on various boards here in the city, or here in the state of, of Colorado. I get involved in community work. I'm, I'm a worker. I'm not one of those that I, I, I discovered that after being on boards, I rather do some of the work than to be sitting in meetings all day. I'm the same way. Um, so you also mentioned that you had um, some children. Mm -hmm. Do you care to share a little bit about the family that you created here in Denver? I have two uh, grown children, and uh, each have uh, given us a, a, a grandchild. I have a granddaughter who's the oldest of the two, and um, that's my son's daughter. And my daughter has a, gave us a grandson, so who is eight. So it uh, from one extreme to another. What year in school is your granddaughter now, and is she getting the type of African-American studies education that you think she should be? I do not think she's getting that at school, but um, uh, being around me and some others, uh, she will get it. So um, my grandson, who is eight at seven, invited me to come and speak to his second grade class. 
because he's read my book, and he he you know wanted his school to or his classroom to understand, you yeah, know, his right. Mm. So anyway, those things are happening. Wow. Um, today, I say that young that everyone has a responsibility, and especially in the African-American community, to speak to their children, their grandchildren, their nieces, nephews, sisters, brothers, whatever, and help them understand what they, they and their forefathers have given to this country. I knew that growing up. That was part of the conversation within my family. My mother and father both came from pretty large families, and um, my mother's side of the family had more educators. Um, my father's side of the family were more entrepreneurs um, that had businesses of their own or had whatever they did, they, they did on their own, on their business. Uh, all believed in education, and um, as I said before, um, even at my black junior senior high school, before going to Little Rock Central High School, I had three relatives there that were teachers. One who was over the library, uh, one who taught uh, auto mechanics, and another who taught uh, uh, physical education, and then there were a lot of friends there that uh, that were friends of my family. So. Well, I heard you talking with my colleague Ryan about how when you were in junior high school, you got to be, you know, involved in a lot of different activities. You got oh, to really shine and do the sorts of things that you wanted to do. So when you were in high school, did it ever come around that you were able to participate like you wanted to do? No. Um, I, I, high school was 10th, 11th, and 12th for me. I knew going in that we were not going to be able to participate in any extracurricular activities. We were told that by the superintendent of schools the month before we started. So I do believe that the 39 that were in that room heard that and decided, well, maybe this is not the place for me. Because I know for myself and those of the other of the Little Rock Nine were always taught that to be a well-rounded person, you do well in school, you participate in activities, you do for your community, you church-going people, and that sort of thing. So we were, you know, I think that that 39 that was in that room with the superintendent were, were had passed the Jackie Robinson test, in a sense, and these were safe kids to go to Little Rock Central High and and be a, a part of an integrated situation. Can you explain what you mean when you say they passed the Jackie Robinson test? Well, we all know what it took for Jackie Robinson to be, uh, he was the first to play professional baseball. Uh, that's not to say that he was always the best, but it, look at how old he was when he finally got that opportunity to play for the Brooklyn Dodgers. Jackie Robinson was told, you know, that you're going to, things are going to happen, and you're going to have to be able to ignore it. 
and, um, and, and be able to move past that uh, in so many words. And I think that we were that way. We knew when we were told that we could not retaliate, we understood that. Um, but we weren't those type of fighters. You got physical fighters and then you got mental fighters and, you know, and I think we were more of the latter. So um, take me for instance, um, the way I protected myself in the hallways was understanding that um, once they had knocked my books out of my left as I walked down the hall and then I had to stoop to pick them up, after the first kick in the rear, I recognized I had to keep my rear to the wall. When I was in the cafeteria, you knew that you had your back to the wall. So, I mean, it was the defensive mechanisms that I developed that particular year. That, and it only took one something for me to not want to have to repeat it. So, I'm sure Jackie Robinson went through the same thing. And um, with the information that he had been given before he started playing uh, in, in the major leagues. So, uh, and I know he got angry. I met this man when I was a kid. Um, I'm sure he was angry about some things, but he had to uh, uh, restrain himself for a lot of activities. So if you had the chance to do it again, would you choose to? Uh, yes. Uh, I used to say no. No, I didn't say no. I used to say if I didn't have family, because they are the ones I felt that suffered the most. But as I've grown older, I, you know, that was a flippant remark, because we all have some type of family. We come from somewhere. So um, the more I thought about it, you know, don't, don't be flippant with it. Would you? Yes. Uh, because? I know it was the right thing to do. I, what I was doing was within the law, okay? And I had been taught that from early on, that the best way to handle things, uh, especially in the South, is that you stay within the law. That was, the, that, that was your first move. Uh, were, were you rightful? And... Brown versus Board of Education gave me the right. The Supreme Court decision gave me the right. The Little Rock School Board abided by the Supreme Court decision by putting a plan in place to exercise that right. I might not agree with the plan that they put in place, but I took advantage of the plan that they put in place. So if you had wanted to, you could have attended an all-black high school instead? If I had wanted to, that's exactly where I would have gone, to Horace Mann High School. But no, I got this right. And why should I pass the best high school in the state of Arkansas that had everything that was necessary for me to apply for any college throughout the United States? Why shouldn't I go there? Um, and or or walk another two miles to the black high school. So um, there was only one high school that was integrated. 
They built a new high school on the west side of town and a new high school on the east side of town. That's where the predominantly black people lived on the east side. The predominantly middle class and, and, and upper class lived on the west side of town and central was in the city, and which was one mile, a little less than a mile away from my home. So why shouldn't I go there? So that became the third high school? It was, it was the high school in town and in the state. The other two were just built. That was a part of that plan. Okay, we got to integrate, but how are we going to do this? And I guess the, Supreme, the uh, superintendent and the school board had come up with a plan to build two new high schools. So my best friend refused to go to Central, who lived in my neighborhood. She said, why should I go there when I can go to the new black high school? Because it was new, okay? Um, but I didn't need my best friend to go to Little Rock Central High School. Um, we remained friends, and she kept me in up to speed of what was going on and all of that sort of thing. Do you think she had a better experience in high school than you did? Well, she had a safer one, for sure. <laughs> I don't know uh, how we would define better. Uh, mine uh, uh, was, you know, it, mine was a job every day. It, they took all the fun out of going to high school. I, I enjoyed school from kindergarten on. I love going to school. So, um, and I love participating in things, and all of those things had been taken away. So it was all about doing well in my classroom, keeping my uh, honor society level up, to be able to go to whatever university that I could get into with a scholarship, hopefully. And that was my goal, and my goal was to finish be a sophomore at Little Rock Central High School and graduate uh, in 1960 at Little Rock Central High School, and I accomplished that. <laughs> yeah. And so tell me this. Um, now, in 2023, what are the memories that stick with you the most about your high school experience? The celebrations recently, since the 30th, I guess, have always been on the plus side. I like the fact that the 40th anniversary, the city decided they needed to clean up their act, more or less, and the committee included the business people that helped to put on the 40th anniversary. And that was a very moving event for us too, because the President of the United States was there along with, he brought his cabinet with him. Uh, since then, we've had the 50th. That was my biggest memory on the plus side, because after 50 years, we were all there still together. Um, we had all accomplished our various uh, avenues of, of work and so forth. We were able to bring our families there and share our stories with the families and so forth. And we gave our scholarships, $10,000 scholarships to uh, nine students to go to college. We had raised close to a million dollars and over a period of time that is what we did. 
we set up a program for them to, we mentored them that year, and their charge was to mentor the next scholarship winner, and that's, that's what has happened. So over, although um, in the recent years, it is now a part of the Clinton School of Public Service, where to get a postgraduate degree, we found that they are also in need. So that is that scholarship fund is there now. Mm -hmm. um, we are getting to the point where we, we can't handle that anymore as far as raising funds and so forth. We are in our 80s now. We need to, we would like to sit back, but with what is going on today, we still have to speak to people like you. <laughs> well, what I was going to ask you next is what would you like to say if you had a chance to speak to Governor Huckabee about the fact that your own personal story is kind of being erased from history if she would have her way? If she would have her way, but our, our, our personal story will not be erased because we will continue to speak the truth. Um, it's sad that she has decided to go in that direction. She wants to say that her father opened the door for us. Yes, he was invited by President Clinton along with the principal of Little Rock Central High School. The three of them opened the door for the Little Rock Nine to go through at the 40th anniversary at his request. Uh, that is during the days when Republicans and Democrats could talk to each other with civility. Today, it, uh, it, it's lacking, and it is unfortunate that um, they cannot work together across the aisle. There are some that are working across the aisle. I, I recognize that, but as a rule of thumb in the past 10 years, it has been very difficult for Congress to represent us as they should when we send them there. Mm -hmm. So uh, we are fortunate here in this state that we have overall, other than one who I hope will be defeated here in the near future, um, that truly represents this state. Do you think that being one of the Little Rock Nine was the most impactful thing that you got to do with your life? It's a part of my life. It is not my life. Um, you know, we go through stages, and um, I do think <laughs> that the nine of us uh, had a job to do. And we did it, okay? And um, we're still here. And um, that, that just says to me that um, we, we did the best we could with what we had. So what makes me feel good is to see young people, especially those of color, who have taken advantage um, the opportunities to get the best education available to them, move it into the next level, whether it is universities or whether it is being uh, a technician of some sort. You don't have to be a doctor, lawyer, or an Indian chief. 
You can be the best mechanic. You can be the best plumber. There are other avenues uh, with jobs to make a living, an honest living, to take care of you and your family. So to do that and, and, and to really appreciate those sort of things makes me feel pretty good. So what is your day-to-day like, like now? I am still a realtor. I do a lot of uh, speaking uh, engagements. Um, during COVID, I had to do via Zoom. Um, I uh, speak to high schools and, and to various groups of people uh, because the book that I wrote in 2009 still has legs and, and, and people want to hear more about my, my involvement at that time. So I do that. Um, I'd like to just sit back and truly enjoy the rest of my life with traveling and listening to great jazz musicians and uh, going to the winning football games of the Denver Broncos and the Denver Nuggets. I'm a sports enthusiast. So those are the sort of things that uh, I, I'm doing. I thoroughly enjoy my grandchildren when I'm around them. Um, I'd like to expose them to all of the things that I had enjoyed and more for them um, and hope that they um, understand the value of it and not take it for granted. Um, so th- those are some of the things that I'm, I'm sure there are other things. I, I enjoy lunches with various people and I do that as often as I can. Um, and then you mentioned that you also take care of your mom. Tell me a little bit about her. My mother is the only uh, parent of the Little Rock Nine left. She is 98 years old, and um, I'm the primary caretaker. Uh, I have two sisters. They do their share, but uh, she looks to me because I'm the oldest. So um, uh, that is is a day-to-day event. I had the opportunity to... uh, uh, enjoy my 80th birthday in Hawaii and the whole family was there including my mother we were able to take her so um, that that in itself was uh, uh, one of those great moments in my life so um, because you never know how much longer we'll all be around and especially when you're 98 so um, that my, you know, we we have caregivers, and uh, we are doing the best we can to to um, honor her wishes, which is to remain home, mm-hmm. and um, um, and that's what we are doing. And my last question is: Are there any things that you haven't done that you still would like to do? What I would really love to do is get back on the golf course, but I can't do that. My knees are not. <laughs> Uh, and the young knees that I had back in my 20s and 30s. Uh, I'd just like to travel more. Yes, that that would would be something that I would like to do. But I would really love to, what would really warm my heart even more is to see more and more women 
in positions of power, mm -hmm. such as our Vice President of the United States, to see more women in Congress, to see more women involved in our state politics, um, to be able to teach their children and other children that they too can be in, in these positions. Uh, I would love to see more and more young people like the kids that spoke out against gun laws, those from Parkland High School in Florida. I'd vote for any one of those that were, the way they spoke out and spoke up. Um, I'm, I'm, those sort of things warm my heart. They really do to see that going on. And I just spoke over here at East High School last year, and I'll never forget um, uh, this one particular year. It, it was the year of voting. I guess it was during the Obama time. That's when it was. And I suggested to those young people in that history class to go home and ask their parents to do one thing for them and that was to register to vote and make sure they voted in the election that year. And I had seven hands to go up who said that they were already registered to vote. Now that did me, I, you know, they were old enough to register and that was one of the first things that they had done. So, you know, if we can get the young people to understand, and that's why the AP African-American Studies course is necessary. That helps them to develop those ideas of what they need to do to make their community a better community. Those seven kids who had already registered to vote, they understood that their vote counts. And I'd like to see more of that. Well, thank you so much for sitting and talking with me today. It was just so lovely to meet you. Nice meeting you as well. And thank you for having me. Carlotta Walls Lanier, one of the Little Rock Nine, speaking with CPR's race, diversity, and equity reporter Elaine Tassie about the state of civil rights and the culture wars that persist over teaching black history in American schools. Her book, published in 2009, is called A Mighty Long Way. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. The Pueblo Chili may not be as well known as its cousin from New Mexico, the Hatch Chili, but fans of fiery flavor know which one tastes better. The pepper from Pueblo is also known as the Mirasol, which translates looking at the sun. And indeed, it does point upwards as it grows under bright southern Colorado skies. Latino and Italian farmers have grown it for more than a century, but in 2005, Colorado State University released an improved variety, thicker and meatier, better for roasting and dicing into green chili, spooned over burritos, enchiladas, and just about everything. The pepper has its own day at the Colorado State Fair, as well as a chili and frijole festival and a specialty license plate. And when the Denver Broncos offered Hatch Chili products at concession stands, local chili fans pushed back. The rivalry was hot, more than a little spicy, and in the end, confirmed Colorado's love for the Pueblo Chili. A Colorado postcard from CPR. Now let's head to the Garden of the Gods in Colorado Springs, where the new manager says the view never gets old. People come here to see the rocks. <laughs> we have these giant red sandstone fins. Um, we've got some that are white or gray that are made of limestone that are just these soaring fins up into the air. 
And then you've got this backdrop of Pikes Peak and the Rocky Mountains behind it. I think that's what makes it so unique. Anna Cordova is Colorado Springs' first and only official archaeologist. She's been interim manager at the park since January, and now her position is official. KRCC's Jess Hazel sat down with Cordova among the towering sandstone formations to chat about her work at the popular park. During your time as the city's archaeologist, the big discovery was some trash from Colorado Springs founder, General William Palmer, and that was right here in Garden of the Gods. Can you tell me a little bit more about that discovery and its significance? We found all of General Palmer's trash in the northeast corner of Garden of the Gods Park. We excavated only a small percentage of the site, and we still got nearly 70,000 artifacts out of it. So it's a, it's a cool site. It seems kind of odd that there would be that much trash in an area like this. Was there a different kind of mindset about nature and these kind of sites during his time as compared to us? At that time, Garden of the Gods Park was still fairly far away from Colorado Springs. Um, and if you have no motorized vehicles or even just basic cars, you're not going to be hauling it out. And so the thing was to kind of dump it near a creek a lot of times, or, you know, people were definitely burning their trash, and we see that activity on, on the Palmer site as well. You know, he, did, he, didn't, he wasn't dumping the trash in the canyon right next to his, his fancy castle, so he was putting it out near the creek and probably hoping that some of it would wash away, and I'm sure some of it did, but covering it over at some points, and it was near his alfalfa field. So, yeah, I think there was kind of a different mindset, but it was also... What else were you going to do with it, I think, at the time? so. How does your past work as archaeologist inform your work here as manager of the park? Well, I think that archaeology is all about preservation and stewardship, and that's what Garden of the Gods is about. So how do we preserve this for future generations? What kind of stakeholders do we need to involve in order to manage the park? So I've definitely relied heavily before on those indigenous voices. The original stewards of the land know how to take care of it. It's not a, a far leap for me, I feel like, um, going from archaeology and making sure that we get different stakeholder voices and opinions in there. And as a young student, I remember there wasn't a whole lot of indigenous voices represented in archaeology. I think it's very empowering to, to be able to interpret your own history and not have other people do it for you. And so, And then again, archaeology also lends to how we manage and steward places now. And that tribal consultation is not just about archaeology, it's about how we go forward into the future and how we do things in the present. Can you tell me a little bit more about what stewardship means to you and what that looks like? Yeah, I think it's it's about your connection to places and how you're thinking about them and how you're going to care for them and shape them for future generations. I always joke that Garden of the Gods Park does not need a manager. The park itself doesn't need a manager. The people that come to the park um, do. And so um, just trying to figure out how to balance the resources with visitation and making sure that people can come here and enjoy it um, and fall in love with it as much as so many millions of people have already done. That's the new manager of Garden of the Gods Park in Colorado Springs, Anna Cordova, speaking with KRCC's Jess Hazel. When you stop and listen, summertime in Colorado can get pretty noisy. There are the familiar choruses of crickets, the shrills of cicadas, but that's not all. 
If you've ever heard mysterious sounds from the underbrush and wondered about the insect behind it, you are not alone. Here's CPR's Megan Verlee. Ann Garfinkel and her dog Riley like to start their days with a quick hike in the grassland south of Denver. We are back along the Highland Canal Trail, just in a little pocket off of the canal where there's some trails and woods, ponds, and a good spot for my dog to run. I joined Ann for a walk earlier this summer, after she rode into Colorado Wonders about a certain sound she'd been hearing. Just walking out here one morning, we could hear a, a little click in the trees. And at first I thought it was a bird. And then eventually realized it's some kind of bug. Like Anne, I am always wondering about the insects I hear but can't identify. So I was eager to learn more about her little tree clicker. Unfortunately, on this morning, they were apparently feeling shy. All but one of them, at least. Tell me what you're hearing. Just a little clicking in this tree on the other side of this canal. My mic didn't really pick it up all that well, but it was this little series of taps, sort of like embers popping in a dying fire. The problem is, trying to figure out which insect is making a particular tap can be a bit like spotting the killer in an Agatha Christie novel. There are a lot of suspects. When Anne first tried to find her bug, she went to exactly the same place lots of us go with our questions. I googled it, a clicking bug, in Denver in June. And the first thing that popped up was a spring beetle, also called a snapjack. But I don't know if that's what it is or not. Spoiler alert, it's probably not. I am going to come back to the snapjack because they are a fun bug, but likely not the right bug, at least in this case. For a non-Google opinion, I sent our mystery bug sound to this guy. My name is Kareem Garby. I am the extension agent for Denver County. Garby poked around a few naturalist websites, sort of like playing insect Shazam, and came back with a suspect, Putnam cicada. The cicada that I'm suspecting of this sound, it's in this different subgroup called the wing tapping cicada. So instead of making that shrill droning of it's just like almost like someone is like tapping some kind of surface. Putnam cicadas are found across Colorado, including Mesa Verde National Park, which posted this lovely clip. Most cicadas have a special organ called a timble to make their super loud noise to pick up a mate. These guys, though, they take a simpler approach, just rustling their wings together to make a little click, click, click. Garby says quieter still works as long as you find your niche. There is all of this like sound specialization. They're all competing with each other for the same sound space. And so to minimize competition, they each take on their own specific frequency rhythm. Okay, if it is summer in Colorado and you hear some tap, tap, taps from the trees, a good guess is Putnam cicada, but it is not the only possibility. If you're in just the right place at just the right time, you might indeed hear a snapjack or a click beetle, the insect Google told Anne she was hearing. We have them in Colorado, but they are rarer to hear because they aren't clicking to find a mate. They're just on their back and need to flip over. They're going to have like two little spines on the sides of the thorax, and these two spines will click. That's what makes this very strong sound. That's Francisco Garcia, entomology manager at the Butterfly Pavilion in Westminster. Click beetles are one of the most diverse beetle families out there, found all over the world. They also have a little latch at the bottom of the thorax, so once this latch is like let loose, 
then they can have this very big movement where they can go and put themselves into the air and make this very hard noise called the click, right? Colorado's click beetles are generally slender and brown, pretty humble. But the butterfly pavilion has some tropical ones in its collection that come with glow-in-the-dark eye spots on their backs that burst to life when something bothers them. And like other beetles, these guys play some pretty important roles in the ecosystem. The click beetles can also be pollinators, which is super exciting. But some other ones will be feeding on the floor, so they're going to recycle the soil and make it like nutritious and nice for other plants. So there are these little janitors out there just helping us have a healthy ecosystem. So whether Anne's mystery insect might have been a click beetle or more likely a wing-tapping cicada or even some other little bug we've overlooked entirely, it's a reminder to keep your ears as well as your eyes open when you go out in Colorado. I'm Megan Verley, CPR News. What do you wonder about Colorado? Send us your questions at cpr.org slash coloradowonders. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.